Welcome to Real Life. Today we will begin a new series on the book of Philippians. This study, led by Charlay Knight, breaks down each section within this book to really get into what Paul is writing to this church. It's our hope that through this class you will gain a deeper understanding of how to interact and study scripture. So let's begin. Thank you very much. Okay, so tonight's lesson will be a little bit different because we are actually going to cover the entire chapter, chapter 2. And yes, that sounds like a lot, but it's going gonna, it's gonna to work out, I promise. We are going to cover the entire chapter 2, so we're not going to you know, read it all at once. We'll just take it chunk by chunk. That'll make it easier. So just a, a recap, of course, we, uh, in chapter 1, we learned that the secret to joy in the midst of circumstances is the single mind, have, having our minds focused on the gospel. In chapter 2, we're going to learn that the secret of joy in the midst of people is a submissive mind. Has anybody ever had situations where people kind of stole your joy? for sure I have. In chapter 1, we learn to put Christ first. In chapter 2, we're going to learn to put others next, putting others before yourself. And putting others before yourself is submitting to one another. And that word sub means under. So you are considering yourself lower, under than other people, having that servant mindset. There can be no joy in the life of a believer who puts himself above others. It just, it can't happen. And of course, we know that unity is a vital part of being the church. And we can't have unity if we all have this me-first mentality. So we have to be able to have that submissive mindset. We also need to understand that there is a difference between unity and uniformity. Sometimes people get those confused. We're not all the same. We're not supposed to be the same. We're not going to be the same, and that is perfectly fine. We all have different opinions, but we also need to keep in mind, if you are putting Christ first, your opinions must submit to him. But we have different opinions, and we have different backgrounds, etc. But we're striving toward the same goals, and that's what brings us into unity we are one body many parts as the word of god tells us we have different functions different giftings uniformity would mean that we're all exactly the same but unity means we can be different but we're striving toward the same goal we have the same priority which is christ the gospel discipleship and you'll notice that this chapter starts with the word therefore does everybody's i know different translations may have it worded differently does yours start with therefore okay that word therefore tells us that paul is referring back directly to the section that we covered last week the last part of chapter one so we need to think back on that for just a moment to remember what it was that he was talking to us about. Paul was talking about contending for the faith. He was focusing on the importance of us fighting alongside one another together 
in unity that there was such a threat of division and such a threat of false teaching that he was encouraging them to put aside their differences and lock arms to fight for the truth. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 4 is kind of an introduction, giving them the overall view of what Paul wanted to accomplish among them in light of what he had just talked about in the previous chapter. So we need to keep that in mind as we're going through this. So verses 1 through 4 says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Now, we've heard that, that phrase, selfish ambition, before in chapter 1. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. And we see those same types of phrases talking about togetherness and unity as he was talking about in the previous section. So he's once again encouraging them towards that, towards unity and togetherness. The rest of the chapter is Paul giving us four examples of people who have this submissive mindset so that we can learn from them what that looks like. The first and greatest example that he gives, of course, is Jesus. He is the ultimate example of everything that we should strive to be like. We are supposed to be striving to be Christ-like. So we have this example here of having the submissive mind in verses 5 through 11. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross." Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Whew, I love that portion of scripture. It's, it's powerful. So in here, Paul is giving us the example of Jesus and he lists four different characteristics of Jesus that just exemplify a person with a submissive mind. So we're going to look at these four characteristics and you will also notice that these characteristics are in many of the other people that you see in the Bible. This first characteristic we find in verses 5 and 6. And this is that Jesus thinks of others, not himself. 
You know, as Jesus, it says, in, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as, as Christ Jesus. And we need to realize that Jesus was thinking of his relationship with you and his relationship with me when he submitted to the Father. He was in submission because he was thinking about relationship. He wanted a relationship with us, and he submitted because of that. That was important to him, so he submitted. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 24 says, No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. Romans chapter 12, verse 3 says, For it is by grace, by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. So we see Jesus being this example of having a submissive mind and putting others first above himself. And we see other scripture references encouraging us to do that same thing, to put others above ourselves. The second characteristic that Jesus is displaying for us is in verse 7. And it's that he serves. He is a servant. He made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. He humbled himself. We see that he serves, and we could look at all kinds of scriptures and examples of Jesus doing exactly that, of serving. We see him washing the disciples' feet. We see him serving people food. We see him healing people. He is constantly serving people. And uh, Matthew 20, uh, verse 28, says, Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Mark chapter 9, verse 35 Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10 says, Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. And there are so many other scriptures that are examples of this. And, and we, this is something we're all familiar with. We, we know that this is part of the Christian life is to serve, to be servants. And Jesus was our perfect example of that. The third characteristic is that he sacrifices. And we know that Jesus did this in a way that we hopefully never will have to sacrifice quite in the way that he did. But he sacrificed by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. You know, many people are willing to serve. Um, we've probably all served in the church in some capacity or another. Um, as long as it doesn't cost anything. 
Sacrifice means it costs you something. In most cases, true sacrifice costs you everything. There was a, a missionary in Brazil that was attending a, re a religious festival, and they had all these booths set up where they were, you know, selling things and, you know, passing things out. So he was looking around at all the booths to see what they were selling, and he saw this sign that said, cheap crosses. And he said, that's what many Christians are looking for nowadays, cheap crosses. My Lord's cross was not cheap. Why should mine be? And I thought, wow, how true. How true. We see crosses so much, it's, it's almost like we become numb to what it really means, what it really signifies. The cross of Jesus was not cheap. It costs a lot. And we know in several places in the Gospels, Jesus says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. The, the submissive mind leads to joy because it makes us more like Christ. We share in his joy as we share in his sufferings, as we sacrifice for him. That's not something we like to think about a lot, but there is joy in sharing that connection with Jesus. It's that fellowship that we were talking about on day one, that fellowship, that closeness of knowing that you are experiencing something that Jesus experienced, and it brings you joy. And the last thing that uh, we see in this section about Jesus is that he glorifies God. In verses 9 through 11, we see this, that he is, Jesus was exalted because God exalted him in order for God to get the glory. God gets the glory. Philippians chapter 1, verse 20, Paul talks about this um, as himself being that example. He says, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Glorifying God is one of the keys if we are submitting our goal is going to be to glorify god not to glorify ourselves it's not about us it's about other people and it's about the lord matthew chapter 5 verse 16 says in the same way let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your father in heaven bringing glory to god in all that we do romans chapter 15 Verses 5 and 6. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind towards each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There you see that message of unity, that together as one we are bringing glory to the Lord through our endurance, 
through our attitude that we are bringing glory to God. When we are in unity, moving towards that goal, that brings glory to God. Because unity is hard. It's, it's not always easy. Because, you know, we think about the, the differences, and sometimes we focus so much on that that we get totally off course. Unity isn't something that just comes naturally. It's a supernatural thing. It's the power of the Holy Spirit moving in us and moving us towards that goal. And as we're doing that, we're bringing glory to God. People are looking at us at this point in time, all the division in the church. The disunity does not glorify God. It doesn't. So that unity is, is an important factor that we need to get better at. We need to, to focus on what our goals are what the church should be focused on to bring glory to God. So we see that example of Jesus. And we see that he thinks of others, not himself. He serves, he sacrifices, and he glorifies God. And then Paul moves on to use himself as an example. Verses 12 through 18. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God, without fault in a warped and crooked generation, then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain, but even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. So Paul is showing us a couple of different things here about having the submissive mind. And the first is that he's showing us that there's a purpose. There's a purpose to achieve. And we see in verse 12 and also in verses 14 through 16 um, what it is that he's talking about, what the purpose is. In verse 12, he's telling us to work out our salvation. He's not telling us to work for our salvation. He said, work out your salvation. We're supposed to be working out what God is working in. God is working in us, and we're supposed to work it out. And that phrase, working out, um, is commonly used uh, for working a mine, getting everything of value out of that mine, or working a field to make sure that there is a great harvest. So they would have been familiar 
with those two uses of that word. So they would have made a connection of, of Paul saying, work out your salvation. He's saying, you need to gather everything of value out of this gift that the Lord has given you. You need to work it like a field and make sure that there is a great harvest, that you are making fruit out of this gift that the Lord has given you. Salvation is a gift. You're not working for that. You already have salvation, but now you're working it out. And then he says, with fear and trembling. Now that word fear that he's using is not the fear like, oh, I'm afraid, help, you know, that kind of fear. But it's a reverential fear. We know the fear of the Lord is a reverential fear. It's an awe of God as a controlling motive of life in matters spiritual and moral, <clears throat> not a mere fear of his power and righteous retribution, but a wholesome dread of displeasing him, a fear which banishes the terror that shrinks from his presence, influence the disposition and attitude of one whose circumstances are guided by trust in God through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> the reverential fear of God will inspire a constant carefulness in dealing with others. The association of fear and trembling we also see in different portions of Scripture um, that we could also, you know, you can study that phrase if you wanted to study the phrase and see other times that it was used. There are several here, I think. Uh, fear and trembling in Genesis chapter 9, verse 2. Exodus 15, verse 16. Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 25. Psalm 55, verse 5, and Isaiah 19, 16. And we're not going to read all those, but if you're interested, you can jot them down and, and look them up later. Fear and trembling was obviously something that uh, was a phrase that was used, you know, fairly often. So fear is that reverential fear. The word trembling was used to describe the anxiety of one who distrusts his own ability to completely meet all the requirements. But religiously does his utmost to fulfill his duty. So when Paul is saying, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, he's saying, you know, realize that you can't do it on your own. You cannot completely do this on your own. You're going to have to require on the Lord working it in you so that you can work it out. You're going to have to require, uh, lean on the power of the Holy Spirit to accomplish what is set before you. Unfortunately, a lot of times we do try to function and do things just all on our own in our own ability instead of relying on the Lord. In verses uh, 14 through 16, 
Paul is showing us some characteristics that should set us apart from the world in order for us to minister to the world. Grumbling and, grumbling and complaining, of course, are expected of those who do not have the hope that comes in Jesus, from Jesus. But it shouldn't be true of us, however it often is. But we expect that from the world. We should not expect that from us, the church. That's something that should set us apart. We should be rejoicing, of course, no matter what. As we're learning through this book, we should be rejoicing in the midst of difficult circumstances, difficult people. We should be rejoicing. Paul reminds us many times in this book to rejoice. And you can't rejoice if you're grumbling and complaining. The culture may be warped and crooked and confused, but we stand tall and confident because we measure all things by a set standard that doesn't change. The world is getting more and more crazy, and they don't have a set standard. There's not that security of knowing exactly what to expect. It changes so fast, I don't know where the standard is anymore. You know, how stressful that is to not know what the standard is. It changes so quickly, but we have that set standard that we should be able to stand tall and confident and knowing that we are living our life according to the word of God, standing firm. The world has no real solutions. There's nothing to offer. But we have the word of life, and we stand firm and secure in that. As Paul says, hold firmly to the word of life. Once again, referring to the importance of defending the truth, as we talked about last week, in a world that wants to silence it. The world wants to silence truth. But it's important that we hold on to that word of life. The world needs the truth that we have, whether they know it or not, whether they're willing to admit it or not, whether they like it or not. They need to hear the gospel. It's the only hope that they have. But they don't see it that way. But when the world sees these things in us, when we stand in stark contrast with the world, we shine among them like stars, Paul says. Like stars in a dark sky. And if you've ever been out in the middle of nowhere, I mean really in the middle of nowhere, there's no city lights around, there's no street lights, it is so dark, and your eyes are just drawn to the sky because you see all these stars, and it's so distracting. You can't help but look at it because the stars are so bright in contrast to the, the darkness that's around you. It just draws your attention. And that's what we are to the world when we really are standing in stark contrast to the world. We shine as light in the darkness. And of course, that reminds us of what Jesus said, that we are the light of the world. We shine bright in the darkness. I love, I love having the opportunity to be out somewhere where it's really dark and you see the stars the stars. It's just awe-inspiring. So if you haven't been able to do that, try to do it. Try to get somewhere where you're really far away from 
any city lights, and it is, it's beautiful. It's a sight to see. So Paul tells us that there is a purpose to be fulfilled because we're supposed to be ministering to this crazy world, and we, we can't do that if we're just like them. If they don't see us as being completely different, our ministry is going to fall flat. So we need to be willing to be set apart and be different. That is our, our purpose in being willing to submit to one another and submit to the Lord. And then Paul tells us there's a power to receive, which he talks about in verse 13. Remember, we're working out what God is working in. God provides the power for us to achieve his purposes in us. We obey God not because of the pressure on the outside, but because of the power on the inside. A desire to please God and not men. This power comes from the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 says, you will, have, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And there are three tools that God often uses to work this power of the Holy Spirit into our lives. So we're going to talk about those three tools that God uses. And the first one is the Word of God. I have a passion for the Word of God, and I hope that I can somehow instill that passion in other people, a passion to study it, to know it, to spend time in the Word and just let it just transform you, let it just soak in and just live what you're learning as much as you possibly can with this human flesh that we have. Constantly be in the Word of God. That is, is so, so vitally important in the world we're living in right now, especially. The Word of God is one of the tools God uses to work that power into our lives. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13 says, And we also thank God continually, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 says, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. The word of God does that. When you read it, it really does judge your thoughts and your attitudes. You read it and you're like, oh my. All of a sudden, the Holy Spirit just convicts you of something that you said that you shouldn't have said or that you did or something that the Lord wanted you to do that you just avoided doing. It really does, really gets in there. It's, it's good, even though it's painful sometimes because the truth hurts sometimes. And when you realize that you've not really done what you were supposed to do, it's not an opportunity to beat yourself up. 
it's an opportunity for us to go to the Lord and say, okay, once again, I blew it, Lord. Thank you, Lord, because I know that your mercies are new every morning. And I know that your grace is amazing. Lord, I pray that you help give me the strength to recognize these things in myself and to stop doing whatever it is that I'm doing that's hurting you, grieving the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17 says, Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And one of the things that I love about that particular verse is uh, most of the time when the Bible is talking about the word of God, it uses the Greek word logos, logos. And that's what we are used to hearing when we talk about the word of God. In this particular scripture, when we're talking about taking up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, it uses the Greek word rhema which is something that is totally different. It's still the Word of God, but it's, it's, this is different. It's deeper than just reading words on a page. It's when you realize the Word of God is alive and that it's a love letter from God written to you, and it speaks directly into your situation. If you've ever read the Bible and had words just jump out at you and you knew that this applied directly to you right at this moment, that's rhema. That's what rhema is. Or if you've ever been listening to a sermon and something that was said when the, when the pastor is reading the word or explaining it to you just jumps at you and you feel, that pastor's talking directly to me. That's rhema. It is the word coming alive in your life and you realize that it was written for you. It speaks to you and you allow it to penetrate and change you. You're not just defending the word anymore. The word is defending you. It has become a powerful weapon against the enemy. That is rhema. The word of God is powerful. The second tool God uses to work this power of the Holy Spirit into our lives is prayer. And of course, we could do entire studies on all of these things, prayer is one that we can do an entire study on. The Bible talks about prayer a lot. Acts chapter 4, verses 30 and 31 says, Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. So here they are, they're gathering together and they're praying. And then the place they were meeting was shaken. The Spirit of God came on them and empowered them as a result of prayer. Prayer is a powerful, powerful tool of God in our lives. And of course, you know, we could hear all kinds of testimony about prayer, people praying and seeing how God answered it, seeing those things happening in people's lives. It's powerful, powerful to hear testimony of people praying and seeing God answer in a powerful way. 
And that third tool that God uses is one of our favorite ones, suffering. Suffering is one of the tools God uses to work the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We love that, don't we? We love talking about suffering. <laughs> First Peter chapter 4, verses 12 to 19 says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice, inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it shouldn't be as a murderer or a thief or any kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is, a time, it is time for judgment to begin with, the God, with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to, go to do good. Don't you love that? Rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ. Be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. It's, it is kind of, it, it seems like an oxymoron, doesn't it? But it's, it's not. It says, if you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. When you are suffering for Jesus, the Holy Spirit rests on you. After all, the Holy Spirit is referred to as the comforter. Why would we call him the comforter if we're never going to be in a situation where we need to be comforted? The Holy Spirit comes upon us to provide comfort for us in situations when we need it. If we don't need comfort, the Holy Spirit isn't going to be providing it. And then Paul tells us, he tells us that there's a purpose to achieve, there's a power to receive, and then he tells us that there's a promise to believe. From the end of verse 16 all the way through 18, he talks about this promise. He uses this phrase on the day of Christ. And that is the hope and the promise that we cling to, that Jesus is coming back for us. And all the things that we have to experience on this earth, whether it's just the daily grind or different difficulties and trials, or whether we're suffering for the name of Christ, we have that hope and that promise that Jesus is, is coming back for us, and we cling to that. And Paul says even though we're making sacrifices, we can have joy because we are val valuing one another above ourselves. Like I said in the beginning, we can't have joy if we're putting ourselves above others. There's no, there's no joy in that. 
There's joy in putting others above yourself. And then Paul says, rejoice. Rejoice. He says it twice. I am glad and rejoice with all of you, so you too should be glad and rejoice with me. He was rejoicing, and he wanted to encourage them to rejoice as well, even though they were going through the same things he was going through, with the same threats, he wanted them to rejoice. And then he moves into our third example of a person who is showing us submission, having that submissive mind, and that is Timothy. He doesn't spend as, as much time talking about each of them. They're kind of lumped together there, but um, he still tells us some things that we can glean from. They have an example to show us of having that submissive mind. You know, it's, sometimes it can be hard for us to follow the example of Jesus because we're too busy thinking about him being the son of God. We're like, oh, well, he's the son of God. Of course he's going to display those characteristics. But I'm just me, and I can't really relate to that. And then we look at the example of Paul, and we're like, well, he's the mighty apostle Paul, and he did all these wonderful things in the name of Jesus and these miracles and in this fabulous ministry, and I'm just me, and I, I can't measure up to that example. So then he shows us these examples of, you know, it's Timothy and Epaphroditus. So maybe we can feel like maybe we can relate to them a little bit more because they're a little more quote-unquote ordinary, whereas we see Paul as an extraordinary person and clearly Jesus, the Son of God. However, we know from Scripture that Jesus, as he says right here, that he made himself nothing. He humbled himself. So he was not doing all of those things in, as God. He was doing them as a man. He was still God and he was man at the same time. But he was functioning in the power of the Holy Spirit just like we do. And Paul was just a man who was obedient to the Lord. So we can follow his example. But in case that was a struggle for us to think about that, we can look at Timothy. So what can we learn from Timothy here in verses 19 through 22? I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him, who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. Verse 23, I hope therefore to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. So he's talking about Timothy here, and he's bragging on him a little bit. And he's telling us a couple specific things. And that's that Timothy had a servant's heart. In verses 19 to 21, 
Um, Paul is telling us that Timothy had a genuine concern for others, a genuine concern. He wasn't just going through the motions and serving and doing, you know, dotting his I's and crossing his T's because that was the right thing to do. He had a genuine concern for others and was interested in looking out for the interest of others and not his own interests. He served Paul and he served others with the interests of Jesus in mind. The gospel, discipling. And we also see that Timothy had a servant's heart and he had a servant's training. In verse 22, we see that he worked alongside with Paul. So Paul was mentoring him. He proved himself to be fully given to the task at hand and to be trustworthy. And if we look at the letter that Paul wrote to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 13, we won't go into reading all of that, but Paul instructs Timothy on the type of person to appoint to places of leadership. So we know that they were they had conversations and Paul would have followed his own advice when he's looking to put Timothy in a place of leadership he's going to have some expectations of him and he is mentoring him and training him towards that goal so Timothy was obviously a, a servant and he obviously is going to have those characteristics that uh, we heard about from Jesus that he's putting others above himself. And I'm sure that there are sacrifices being made as we, you know, hear about in other portions of Scripture. So he had a servant's heart and a servant's training. And then we see a man named Epaphroditus. I don't know about you, but I'm glad my name is not Epaphroditus. I don't know that I ever would have learned how to spell it as a kid. <laughs> it's, it's not a name that you hear very often, is it? And, you know, Timothy, we can get behind that, but Epaphroditus, I don't know about that. Verses 25 through 30. But I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Isn't that interesting? He was distressed because you heard he was ill. He's not distressed about being ill. He's distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died, but God had mercy on him and not on him only, but also on me to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad and I may have less anxiety. So then welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor people like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. Now, here Paul obviously has a lot of great things to say about this man, Epaphroditus. And what an honor it would be for people to speak of you in this way. 
uh, must have been a really great guy. I personally have never met him, but from Paul's description, I'm assuming he's a really great guy. And there are some specific things that we can learn from Epaphroditus and the example that he set for us. We see in verses 25 through 30 that he is someone who is balanced. He is a balanced Christian. Um, Paul mentions that uh, in verse 25, he mentions that he was a brother, a co-worker, and a fellow soldier. And what I see here is a direct connection to those uh, three things that we talked about in chapter 1. Brother, talking about the fellowship aspect of what we talked about in chapter 1. Co-worker, the furtherance of the gospel that we talked about in chapter 1. And fellow soldier, of course, when we talked about the section of the faith of the gospel. He was a brother, he was a co-worker, and a fellow soldier fighting to defend the gospel. So he was balanced. You know, a lot of times um, as Christians, we can be really strong in one of those areas. You know, the, the, the fellowship or the willingness to defend the gospel or the willingness to preach the gospel Um, We might be strong in one of those areas, but neglect the others. I know for myself that's true. You know, there are a couple of things that I'm good at, and one thing I have to force myself to do, because I know that I'm supposed to. But Epaphroditus is our example that we can and should focus on all three of those. We need to be involved in the fellowship, the furtherance, and the faith, fighting for the faith of the gospel. He was a great example of that. And not only was he balanced, but he was a a burdened Christian. Now, don't think of burden in the negative sense, like, oh, this is just too much for me to carry kind of burden. Not that kind of thing. Um, Because Paul and Epaphroditus, I'm sure, wouldn't see it that way. But Epaphroditus had such a deep concern for Paul and his brothers and sisters in Christ that that deep concern motivated him to do everything that he could to meet the needs of others. He was there for Paul every time Paul needed him. He was motivated out of that deep concern. He was more concerned with others than himself. Once again, he was more concerned with others than himself. Even in illness that almost resulted in death, he was more concerned with, with others. And Paul said that he was concerned because it bothered him that other people knew that he was ill because he didn't want people to be burdened by him or worry about him he was too too busy being concerned about everybody else he didn't want people being concerned about him he was putting others above himself and like jesus you know of course jesus was the perfect example of putting others above himself and epaphroditus knew the meaning of sacrifice and service just as Jesus did. Here he was, willing to do whatever needed to be done, even as he was ill, 
almost dying, he's still doing whatever he can possibly do to help Paul in the mission of carrying the gospel to other people. These are all traits of someone with a submissive mind. And Paul says to welcome him with great joy and honor him. So there is joy in that moment, in those opportunities of sacrificing and serving others. It, it brings us joy. Having that submissive mind and putting others above yourself, there is joy. And Paul said, honor him and honor people like him. I would imagine that it is quite rare to find somebody that really, even on their deathbed, is still thinking about other people all the time. You know, I, I don't know. I've never been in that situation where I felt like I was going to die. Maybe I would, but I picture myself more being concerned about myself. Unfortunately, I think I would be more concerned. Now, my immediate family probably would be on my mind, but here Epaphroditus is, is thinking about the church. He's thinking about the people in Philippi. He's thinking about Paul when he is near death. So he is a person to be honored. We honor people who are willing to put others above themselves. And we are called to be that kind of person. We are called to be that kind of person. Jesus, Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus, they all led examples for us to follow. They teach us how to submit to God and to one another. And as we said in the beginning, that mindset of submission is important in order for us to have unity. And we learn from them that it is possible and it is practical. practical. As chapter 1 taught us, once again, reminding us, that chapter 1 taught us that joy comes when we respond to our circumstances with a single mind, that mind focus on the gospel. Chapter 2 teaches us that joy comes when we respond to people with a submissive mind. So it's important for us to keep remembering what the big picture is. Chapter 1 is that single mind. Chapter 2 is the submissive mind. And I can't wait to start chapter 3. So much so that when Mary asked me what scripture we were going to be on tonight, I told her we were in chapter 3. I was just going to skip over chapter 2. But chapter 3 we will start next week, and we're going to be focusing on verses 1 through 11, I believe. Yes, 1 through 11. And I'll just tell you up front, chapter Three is going to be about having a spiritual mind. So we move from the single mind to the submissive mind to the spiritual mind. And there is a lot of really beefy stuff in chapter 3. So we will um, take it slow. We will take it slow because there's going to be a lot of stuff to cover.